This episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays. Join us every Tuesday at 4 p.m. for great med tech conversations. Go to devicetalks.com to register. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Tom Salami, welcome to this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. It's great to have you here. Got so much going on. Angelique Johnson, the CEO of Memstem, will be giving the closing keynote. We're going to talk to her about her path to entrepreneurship, her work in co-founding MedTech Color, and an upcoming pitch contest that MedTech Color is organizing. Go to medtechcolor.org for more information. Do it quickly. They have a deadline coming up. We're also going to speak with Kayla Crum of Truer Securities. Kayla was nice enough to visit. Talk to us about Q4 results and revisit the results of a survey that Truist conducted of hospitals, asking them about their elective surgery expectations. Finally, pharma editor Brian Bunce is on the show. He's going to talk about a recent experience he had testing out Dexcom's continuous glucose monitor. I'm here with my colleagues, Chris Newmarker, the executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device, and our pharma editor, Brian Bunce, is returning to the podcast with a new headset. Brian, let the folks hear your voice. How's it going? How's the, how's the new headset sound? Testing one, two, three. Sounds great. Chris Newmarker, what do you think? Sound good. Sounded good. It's like we're all just in the same room right now. It is. It is. We are, we are a close-knit, virtual, distant organization, but uh, we've got a lot of news to cover today. Chris has once again come with a full five new markers, yep. newsmakers, and we'll, uh, we'll spread those over, sprinkle them liberally over this podcast. And uh, Brian, you've got a very cool story you posted this week about uh, using Dexcom's uh, continuous glucose monitor, and I uh, thought, thought it was an interesting analysis of yours. So we'll get into that into a mo- we'll get into that in a moment. You know, Tom, what do you think of Tom Brady? That's a great question, Chris Newmark. <laughs> I'm happy for Tom Brady. For those who aren't aware, uh, I'm up in New England. and I'm, a, I'm more of a Red Sox fan than a Patriots fan, but it's hard not to be a fan of a football team that's won a gajillion Super Bowls over the past two decades. Yeah, but they've won a few Super Bowls over they, the years. They've done they? okay. Yeah. And uh, they, they said, you know what? You go, Tom. We'll we'll be fine without you. And they weren't. And uh, I'm happy for him. I think uh, I think it'll be a good Super Bowl for sure. And he beat Aaron Rodgers, which is always a good thing. <laughs> it's just it's just a wealth of 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 good news with uh, football, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I I'm sure there are a, a number of uh, Buccaneer fans now who don't believe that Tom Brady is a cheater. So I'm glad they came over to the <laughs> came over to the good side. So. Anyway, let's get into our new markers, newsmakers. Chris, what's number five? Well, number five on the list is uh, Titan Medical closed a $11.5 million offering. Uh, this was uh, this was in Canada. Um, it was just a private placement in the United States. Uh, but, you know, more some, some good news for Titan. Um, you know, they uh, last year they announced a, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, a partnership, you know, to, to work with uh, Medtronic on, on robotic surgery uh, technology. And, uh, you know, it looks like uh, they, they're, they're moving forward, raising some, some more money, um, you know, continuing to uh, compete in this, uh, you know, really, uh, really hot space right now. I mean, in, Intuitive is still the dominant company. You got these huge companies like Medtronic and Johnson Johnson, you know, ready to ready to get into robotic surgery, but uh, yeah, some some money raised for Titan. I think we we need to uh, start having some Jeopardy categories on these because we we're having some some common themes. Surgical ro- robotics being one, so uh, we've covered that. Now let's look up at the board. And the next one is Spacs. Spacs, what is number four? It's a special purpose acquisition company story, Chris. Yeah, I'll take a special purpose acquisition for uh, for five hundred dollar, five hundred points. I forget was it dollars or points on Jeopardy? It's been a while, so I thought it was uh, Brian. Dollars, Brian. Any insights? I think it's dollars, right? Yeah, I it's believe dollars. it's dollars. Okay. Yes, I'll take a special acquisition deal for <laughs> uh, for five hundred dollars. But uh, we've got uh, you know the Butterfly Network uh, naming a, a CEO right before they. Uh, are you know doing a um, you know merger with uh, Longview acquisition so that they can combine and go go public? Um, Tan, their uh, new CEO is going to be uh, you know Dr. Todd uh, Fruchterman. Um, hopefully, I pronounced that right. Um, he uh, previously spent uh, ten years at uh, at 3M. He was uh, president and 
general manager of the company's medical solutions, you know, division. Uh, you know, he's also held, you know, roles at other companies, including Johnson and Johnson. So experienced med tech executive taking over Butterfly Network. Uh, they've got a uh, this, you know, transducer using semiconductor technology that allows you to do a whole body um, image using a single handheld probe. It you know, sounds like a very cool technology. And uh, I know the news of this upcoming, uh, you know, going public news uh, is, is beginning a lot of uh, views on Mastify. So it's uh, obviously a company to watch in the industry. Uh, all right. Well, we still have lots up on the board. We've got racketeering transformation and of course, COVID-19. But first, before we continue on our uh, new marketers, news markers, news markers, new markers, <laughs> news makers, Jeopardy. Addition, check in with Brian. Brian, you uh, had an interesting experience recently. You wrote about it this week. I was going to say the experience this week, but uh, you had the opportunity to uh, to try a continuous glucose monitor from Dexcom. How did uh, how did this opp- opportunity come to you? So I think Chris got an email talking about their Hello Dexcom program, sent it my way. And then I responded to the original um, sender for, of the um, email and they offered to send me one and they sent me one like within days. Then I kind of like sat on it for like a week or two. It was a little bit apprehensive to, to strap something to my belly for like 10 days. But then like right around like Christmas or maybe just after I put it on. And it's an interesting time to like wear a CGM because I think everybody's like probably glucose tolerance is impaired <laughs> somewhat after the holidays. Yeah. So like I, I saw some numbers that were like a little bit scary, but I think it still was like normal-ish. And I had a doctor kind of review the, the figures after. And he said that it was boring. So that was, I guess, good to hear. But <laughs> yeah. um, it, was, it was interesting just like seeing that data. So like I had it set up so that on my screen on my phone, like every five minutes you see a number and it's, it's kind wow. of addictive. It's like you're going up a hill and you're like wondering like, how's my glucose going down? And you can see patterns about how it changes. Like you can see that if you go for a walk, it'll go down. If you go for a jog, it'll go up. Like certain things, are a little bit we're a learning curve for me so like i found out that if you're doing like kind of moderate or intense exercise it goes up because your your body needs the glucose so you free up a lot so you can get spikes but if you want to bring it down like i saw a lot of like pre-diabetics and diabetics recommend walking after eating it's a way to kind of like bring it down so maybe you need to have less insulin if you're a diabetic you are a healthy individual. You don't have diabetes, correct? Yeah, but I'm, I don't know, middle-aged territory. I think everybody's kind of like glucose tolerance um, goes downhill with age. But um, I think overall, it was it was pretty we're, good. We're but all here with you, Brian. We're all here with you. <laughs> it was, um, at times, there were like spikes when I had like a dessert early on that were high enough to convince me to have fewer <laughs> fewer sweets. <laughs> <laughs> So what what went into putting it on? Was it how was it? What was that process like? Was it easy enough? It's pretty easy. So they they have like this applicator device. It's kind of like a computer mouse. You have like a little plastic tab. You bend it back and forth. You um, put it on your belly and then or your arm or it just depends on where you want to put it. But um, you hit a button and then like it injects into your skin. Like it's not like all the way. I think it's in the like the subcutaneous layer, the interstitial layer. But um, you can barely feel it. It's kind of like you go to a a good nurse and you get a shot that you can barely feel. Like it goes in, but you can't really feel much unless you're like pushing on it or something happens. Like you have somebody I don't know push on your belly. It might hurt, but um, it's barely there. I guess it also is kind of interesting. Like rethinking like showering it's like now have to tape it up like stuff like that you wouldn't think of as a non-diabetic or a non-cgm wearer interesting how about when you while you slept you kept it on the it's, it's yeah, on for the it's entire on. 10 days like, you can't really move it like once it's on like you, it's kind of on for 10 days unless you choose to divert early and i think the new one the, the g7 coming out can be on for 14 15 days but the g6 yeah. is designed for like the 10 day wear and then you get all the data pushed to an app and there's a second app you can get called insight and you can pull reports so you can like look at your your trend curve from one day versus the other you can look at you can crunch numbers you can look at your average over the course of a few days over the course of two weeks there's lots of um lots of tools you can go in you can pull PDFs and you can send them to a doctor if you want to do that. I mean, it sounds like you like got some really cool insights just as somebody who doesn't have diabetes. Um, I mean, I, I would have to think that if you, if someone actually had diabetes, this would be, um, it sounds like it'd be really empowering. Well, I think there's this issue um, called hypo unawareness. So your blood sugar can go down at night 
like to dangerous territory if you're a diabetic and you may not know about it. And sometimes if it gets severe enough, you eventually have symptoms. But I think when it gets to the moderate range, like you can feel normal, but if you get like really low, you can end up like confused and you can, I don't, I'm not a diabetic, so I don't, don't know exactly, but it can be a yeah. kind of like minor emergency or major emergency. So with the CGM, one of the chief selling points early on for diabetics is it lets you know when you're entering that territory. So you can, I guess if it's more mild, you can have like honey or some kind of like sweet food. And if it's more severe, you have to have like a, a drug called, or it's a hormone called glucagon that your body normally produces to raise wow. it back up. But um, it, I could imagine it could really help you kind of get a grip on your um, your levels. And I talked to one, um, one doctor who's a advisor to um, to Dexcom. And he was saying that he sees his patients like um, blood sugar go down over time wearing one just because you get more insights and you can learn how to manage it over time. So you can, you can either get smarter about how you use insulin or you can start doing things like improving your exercise diet and so forth to improve your numbers. I was just saying like, one, you know, one thing, um, you know, I, I, I liked about your story was that, I mean, yeah, there were a lot of uh, like really, uh, you know, cool things that you found out about the, you know, Dexcom CGM, but I mean, you also like, uh, you know, like, like were able to like, you know, point out some, uh, some, some challenges around the device. I mean, what, what were some of those things that you noticed? Well, one of the first things like being that I'm in California and like recycling is kind of like mandatory. Like we separate our trash into three buckets. One of them's compost, one of them's recycling. One of them is like goes to landfill. But one of the first things you notice is you put on this um, device and like the applicator is like the size of a computer mouse and you're meant to throw it away every time, like not recycle it. And I did check into it and the company has looked into recycling it, but I think with the the blood contact or whatever, it's it's kind of questionable how you would do that. But um, just, I don't know, being someplace where you have to recycle, it's kind of a question mark. I'm <laughs> throwing this away every right. 10 days, like this chunk of plastic. And then oh, also the cost, I, obviously it's a medical device, so it's not not going to cost the same as like a fitness catch or something, but um, right. and it can be covered oftentimes by insurance or perhaps Medicare. I need to check into the reimbursement, but I think for some patients, they have to pay out of pocket and it's, it's an investment. If you pay out of pocket, it's like a um, hundred dollars plus per sensor. And then you have to have a transmitter. And then some people have a separate device that they use in conjunction with it to calibrate it with the finger sticks. So all in all, it can be um, kind of pricey. It can be in the hundreds of dollars a month kind of territory for if you wow. pay all of it out of pocket. But at the same time, I almost think that people who are non-diabetic, especially pre-diabetic, could get a lot out of it just to give it a whirl for like 10 days. So maybe they could try it out if they're in, especially with COVID, like you usually go to the doctor to get your A1C um, levels. You do like, a, they do a blood draw and they analyze your numbers and all that obviously requires like driving into someplace, being around people. With the CGM, you can do it all yourself and see it in your phone and share your numbers by email if you have to. And you can get an average over 10 days of your numbers. You can see patterns. Yeah, I could really, so, I, I could see it. Like if I if I gave that a whirl, like I could like cue myself into bad habits or, or whatnot. And as you said, like I could, uh, you know, make sure to have like half a bowl of ice cream, you know, after after dinner versus a full bowl. <laughs> For me, it's like a more inspiring device than like a Fitbit, would gives you like in some cases pulse or steps or activity levels or whatever, because you can kind of get a clearer sense of what's happening with your metabolism. And I've heard of people like Timothy Ferris and stuff like that who are using it as a non-diabetic to enhance like diet and exercise. And I think I saw a blog from like 10, 15 years ago from Timothy Ferris who tried one out, but he was saying that it's overly simplified, but when your sugar spikes up or whatever, it has a tendency to make you fat because you, your body has to break that down and store the glucose, I believe this is right, back into your fat. So um, anyway, it's probably overly simplistic, but... I think there is a connection. If your sugar goes up to like high territory often, it can be perhaps more challenging to maintain weight. So that's one of the um, one of the things you can do is like keep an keep an eye on your numbers and know kind of what your triggers are, and then um, use that to make changes. Well, the article is called uh, "How CGMs Can Inspire Lifestyle Changes." Uh, how, how long since you've had since you've removed it, and what sort of lifestyle changes have you uh, adopted? It's been maybe two weeks that I've not been using it and it's convinced me to take up like every day some kind of physical activity like jogging I was doing, biking, and then to watch kind of like diet, like to make sure I don't have like really refined carbs, which I don't plan on doing permanently. I, occasionally I might have something that's like an exception to that, but that'll be kind of like the main focus is like just keeping an eye on diet and then special occasions you might diverge from it, but 
for the most part, I don't really want to go back to eating like junk food unless it's it's really worth it. So cool. People should definitely check it out. Chris, where is uh where is that running? Hey, that's on our um, our site, Drug Delivery Business News, and uh, we also have the uh, article stubbed on uh, Mass Device and uh, Medical Design and Outsourcing. And we'll uh, we'll have a link to it on the uh, on the podcast notes as well. Great. All right, now it is time to uh, to get into our first interview. Chris Newmarker and I speak with Kayla Crum. She's the managing director at True Securities. We're going to hit upon Q2 numbers and talk about a recent recent hospital survey that uh, that Truis conducted. Let's listen. Exactly. It's earnings season. Let's see what she has to say. Hey, before we start this interview, I want to introduce everyone to Carl Hewitt. Carl is the Head of Design and Innovation at Sagentia. He'll be presenting on our Device Talks Tuesday that's coming up this Tuesday, along with Martin Mitchell, the Head of Human Factors at Sagentia. They'll be talking about virtual user-centered design. And I asked just a few minutes ago why this topic was so important. Modern day, 2020, 2021, traditionally, a lot of those user-centered methodologies required face-to-face interaction, cognitive walkthroughs, observations to really unlock those unknown unknowns. And like any industry, the world pandemic has just thrown that into chaos and we've all had to adapt. And one way to adapt is transitioning this into more virtual forum. You know, everyone's using using Mural, everyone's using webinars like we are now to, to converse and how much of that can be applied to still elicit the sort of feedback and unknown unknowns and user insights to really inform that decision. So don't miss Carl and Martin's presentation this Tuesday at 4 p.m. Go to devicetalks.com to register. Well, Kayla Crum, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Tom. It's good to be back. All right. Well, it's a busy week with quarterly reports coming in. Chris Newmarker, you have been covering these reports. Kayla, you're sitting in on all these exhaustive analyst calls, so it'd be great to get uh, your insights on where we're at. Chris, you covered Stryker last night. Uh, what was your uh, any any questions for Kayla on uh, on the company? Oh, Kayla, I'd really like to get your read on this. Uh, I, I really had a sense uh, during uh, last evening's uh, you know earnings call that uh, they they sounded incredibly optimistic that everything's going to recover a lot later this year. I mean, they were even saying that, you know, even if, um, you know, even if, you know, the second quarter ends up, you know, still being really tough with the pandemic, they think that the recovery will be enough. They're going to meet their projections. I mean, mean, did you get a a similar type of read on that? Yeah, I think it's a good, uh, good point, Chris. I mean, it's been a a whirlwind year with a lot of volatility and and this most recent quarter has been no exception. But I mean, on on Stryker specifically, I mean, this is a company I cover with with a phenomenal management team has proven its ability to actually execute in a really tough, uh, tough environment. Um, but, you know, to your point, a big portion of their business is tied to elective procedures and, and it decelerated from third quarter levels in the fourth quarter. And um, I think for, for them, you know, similar to, to J&J and others that have, uh, have released results, they do expect, you know, some lingering effects and procedure delays will continue into, into January. And again, that's what we're seeing, hearing from, from other companies in our survey work, but there is a lot of optimism and that things can get back to somewhat normal, whatever normal looks like in the second part of this year. Nor- normal enough that people, you know, feel comfortable and safe to, you know, go in for uh, a knee replacement and the, uh, and, you know, the hospital has the resources to actually do it. You know, but you know, t- tell us a little bit more about, you know, the survey work that you've done, because, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I mean, you've, you've had some, you know, recent, uh, you know, surveys that kind of, you know, back up uh, this, uh, you know, w- you know what, what the companies are, are saying that, you know, the, the hospitals are really ready to you know, recover a ton of procedures, uh, you know, once we uh, hopefully get a vaccine rolled out and, you know, and, and get this pandemic more under control. Yeah, I mean, the challenge for us is is this sort of intra-quarter opaqueness. Um, and generally, you know, investors, com- companies, um, I'm sure you all, you know, we're typically going to, to conferences to get data points to understand how things are trending and, and predict businesses. But we, we've had to kind of adjust and get a little quirky and creative with the way that we do research. So, I mean, last week, myself, my team, Dave Rescott, Sam Burdovsky, we literally called 30 of the top 100 hospitals in the U.S because what better way to, to figure out if hospitals are scheduling elective procedures than to simply call them and ask. And what we learned is that many hospitals did effectively shut down in December and even early January, but many are, are, are back to rescheduling cases now. Uh, you know, about 20% of the hospitals 
we call did have some sort of limitations in, in place and some were, you know, leaving the scheduling to the surgeon's discretion. So we, you know, we got a lot of great feedback, questions, comments about that effort, but to your point, it's really only one part of the equation. I mean, surgeons, you know, have to be uh, doing procedures and hospitals have to be taking in patients, but, you know, patients have to seek out the surgeon as well. And if, you know, consumers are nervous to go into the hospital, those procedures don't happen. So our pharma team um, actually did a really great survey of about 1,500 adults, consumer adults. And we included a question about elective procedure volumes and asked people, you know, did you plan to have an elective procedure in 2020, like a knee replacement? And if you did, what happened? Did you actually have it done? And, and, you know, what we found is that, you know, out of the people who plan to have a procedure, about 30% still haven't had that procedure done. So it creates this backlog effect going into 2021. So how does that factor in how things are looking for the coming year? Because you had you had issued a report on on J and J on their call. We can maybe delve into that a, a little bit. But in that, you said that they were initially that the quarter. Well, it's just the management indicated that the recovery experience in the third quarter faded in December due to softness in the market. So I mean, this was something that I think people were hoping against. Was it as bad as people feared, or was it right on online with uh, with expectations? The the, uh, the procedures and the business in the second quarter? Yeah, I mean, the procedure restrictions, you know, tied to COVID really did pick up in December and the headlines have been out there. So many investors had been expecting that the quarter would be impacted in some way. And effectively, and that that is what we saw from a procedure standpoint, the majority of companies I covered, you know, many executed well, navigated the challenges, but um, but they hurdled a lot of procedure cancellations at at year end. And so it is a concept that a lot of investors are talking about because as those procedures come back, as volumes recover, companies may experience higher revenue. And perhaps for that reason, they, they want to own the stock. Um, so now everyone's trying to, to figure out when this backlog may be coming Um and again, you know what what we have found in our in our survey is that you know people are are trying to reschedule their procedure for the first part of 2021. And so, you know, I think I think that's a, an interesting data point. How do things look going forward in the other companies you've covered? You said you've you've received you've indication from the companies as to where their numbers might be. What are you anticipating the next week and a half or two weeks of quarterly reports looking like in terms of positive, negative? Mixed. I mean, what we're seeing across our list, um, and and you know, over half of our companies have pre-announced results at this point. So we have a good, I'd say, sense of what what had happened uh, in the fourth quarter. It does seem like you know some companies benefited from a little bit of backlog in in the third quarter that continued into October, slowed down in November, and further decelerated in December. But We've been pleasantly surprised with how well the capital environment has held up in some categories. I mean, you know, Stryker, uh, you'd mentioned earlier, Stryker sold over 100 robots in the fourth quarter, which is is pretty incredible at a time where budgets are challenged and these robots are, are still getting prioritized. And procedures done in the outpatient setting, uh, those also seem to be holding up fairly well or at least getting rescheduled a little bit more quickly than than others. I mean, Stryker, you know, had a had a tough year last year, like any ortho company. But I, I kind of noticed they performed a lot better than their competitors through, you know, through this crisis. I mean, how much of a role did Mako play in that? I mean, I think that Mako uh, certainly played a, a a big role, and I think that there's. Originally, most um, most analysts, most investors, including myself, were pretty skeptical that robotics would continue to, to be a priority for the hospital system during such a challenging time. But it, it really has been a priority. And, you know, we've talked to a lot of, of hospital execs about this. You know, I think that orthopedics tend, tend to be uh, sort of a profitability driver within a hospital. And so, you know, as these procedures recover, as they come back, ultimately hospitals want to attract those profitable cases to their to their hospital systems. And what better way, I guess, to, to, to do that with a, than with a robotic system? So I certainly think that it's had it's played a role. 
Yeah, it's interesting right now because J and J they just uh, you know recently rolled out their new ortho robot. They were talking it up a bit during their you know earnings call. Uh, you know, Smith and Nephew had a next gen system that they rolled out last year in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and Zimmer Biomed, of course, has the Rosa system. I mean, how how much are they going to be able to kind of you know compete against Striker on on this, or does or, or does Striker kind of like have this dominant position now that's going to be hard to topple? You know, it certainly is is going to be an interesting dynamic to monitor. Um, in either case, I certainly think this year is going to be noisy um, from a competitive standpoint in large joint ortho robotics. But I also think that Stryker owns Mako not not only for that that large joint business. Over time, I fully expect you know Stryker will innovate, continue to uh, um, to roll out different indications with uh, with its robotic system. You know, something um, they were really talking up a, a lot during the earnings call last night was their orthosensor acquisition. And you know, I've, I've heard, uh, you know, I've heard talk that, you know, the Zimmer Biomet, you know, call in a week is going to be really interesting because, you know, they've, you know, they've got plans around smart knee implants. I mean, is this kind of a new trend to watch out for? It absolutely is. I think Orthosensor is a, is a great deal for Stryker. And I think that, you know, Zimmer, to your point, has has been talking more and more about sort of the value behind smart implants. And, and I think that within large joints, there's been this, this question of how do you continue to innovate when long-term results are, are still fairly uh, good? You know, there's, there's good outcomes in, in the knee segment, in the hip segment. And so how do you innovate and make these procedures better? Because patients still, even with with what on paper looks to be good outcomes, a lot of patients still don't feel like they have a natural feeling me. And so how do you innovate to make these things better? And so ultimately, I do think that that smart implants will play a role in uh, in that category. Do you track, I'm curious, we're in, the, we're in vaccination season. Are you at all monitoring how the med techs are doing in getting their employees monitored, where they may be in the list, uh, sorry, vaccinated, where they may be on the list and, and how that might impact finances going forward. Is that a metric or questions at least that you're, you're asking about or, or is that too far afield? It's, it's a good question. I think from what we've heard from our companies, every, every company wants to ensure that, 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 you know, the hospital providers are getting vaccinated, that their sales reps who were, who are visiting, you know, that these hospitals are getting vaccinated and ultimately looking out for the best, uh, um, best case for their patients, just, you know, ensuring that, that people stay safe. And I think that a lot of companies have had to adjust over the last 12 months with virtual meetings and, you know, having these virtual sessions for, for sales reps. But I do think that ultimately, you know, hopefully as soon as things kind of get back to semi-normal and people do get vaccinated, we can get back to sort of live meetings, live in-person events, and sales reps can sell product as normal. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to some uh, coffee meetings later this year. <laughs> Me too. Absolutely. <laughs> Anything in person. <laughs> exactly. You know, just, uh, you know, just to kind of wrap up, you know, anything, um, you know, anything that you're especially watching out for as we like continue this earnings season? Certainly more data points um, just around procedure trends in January, how they're moving into February and whether or not small cap companies choose to provide guidance for their business. Because many small cap companies had pulled guidance during the pandemic and, you know, I think we're optimistic that they would be able to guide for their businesses in 2021 before sort of the challenges of December. So, you know, J&J gave us guidance, Stryker's given us guidance, but, you know, we'll have to see over the next month how things change, how they evolve, if, if, if other companies will feel confident putting numbers uh, behind their, their businesses this year. So those are things that certainly we'll be monitoring. How has the lack of guidance impacted your ability to do to do your job? How much more difficult is it without that that information from the companies? Frankly, it's made the job a lot more fun, but it does create <laughs> challenges. Um, it does create challenges in the way that uh, you know consensus, for example, you know commonly you know, investors will refer to a consensus number that is essentially, you know, my estimate pooled with a million other analyst estimates. And at this point, the range of estimates is all over the place. And so, 
you know, you have to get, you have to be pretty good at predicting businesses, but also um, uh, there's a lot of sort of intra-quarter opaqueness, as I mentioned. So we have to get creative in reaching out and, and, and doing our research and ultimately putting, putting numbers behind, uh, behind these businesses. So it definitely has been a very interesting dynamic, but I do think that as guidance as guidance comes out, as, as more and more companies feel confident giving guidance, uh, we will see that range narrow. And that sort of predictability should be helpful in our space. Excellent. Okay, well, we always appreciate your thoughts. You're always welcome in the podcast. Thanks for taking the time today. It was good to catch up with you guys. And nice to meet you, Chris, over, over the phone. Yeah, you too. This was great. And we're back. It's always great to hear from uh, Kayla Crum. But now it's back to Newmarkers, Newsmakers, Jeopardy. Chris, what's the next category? You know, I'll take a racketeering lawsuit for $1,000. <laughs> Ding! We got a... Uh... We got a, a federal judge uh, here where I am in Minnesota. Um, the judge decided that uh, Myland uh, is going to have to face a lawsuit accusing it of uh, paying bribes and kickbacks to pharmacy benefit managers. Uh, of, uh, you know, it's, it's being accused uh, of uh, conspiring to fix uh, prices prices on its EpiPen device, which uh, if, if anyone doesn't know what an EpiPen is, it's, uh, it's a really crucial device for people who uh, have severe allergies. Um, and, uh, you know, this isn't the first time Mylan's faced, faced some criticism over, over you know, how he, it handles uh, EpiPen sales. Uh, so it'll, we'll, we'll, see, uh, we'll see where this case goes here in Minnesota. The EpiPen 2 is back in the news with COVID-19 with the vaccines. Oh, yeah. Perhaps like five to 10 people out of out of a million have like these severe reactions to the, the shots. I think especially from, I think from the both mRNA ones that are out there. But the EpiPen is a way to deal with it. If somebody goes into the anaphylactic shock, you give them a dose of ephedrine. If I recall so far, at least in, in most of those cases where there's been those reactions, they were people who had EpiPens. So that's, that's why we, um, it's thankfully like keeping um keeping like the uh, the death count down from uh, vaccine side effects so do those people have a standing allergy that will have the epipen so there's something going on but is there one common allergy that's caused those uh reactions was it shellfish or something i think from what i saw there was no clear cause yet there, there were some theories about different ingredients in the, the vaccines that were triggering it but i think it was uncertain <laughs> All right, Chris, you have two tiles left on the board. Right. You can choose transformation officer or COVID-19 vaccine again. Oh, yeah. Let's let's mix it up. You know, I'll take transformation officer for uh, for uh, $2,000 at, at Zimmer Biomet. They uh, they uh, they named a uh, – they have a newly created position of uh, chief transformation officer. Uh, they brought in uh, Ellie Humphrey, uh, who uh, – has uh, over the years held uh, several leadership positions at Medtronic, including uh, vice president of enterprise excellence and business transformation. And I mean, you know, Zimmer Biomet in recent years under Brian Hansen, they've been going through like a, a really big reorganization, really trying to recast the company. I mean, this, this seems to be a, a good sign that they decided they actually really, uh, you know, needed, you know, somebody who was like, hey, they, they're the chief transformation officer. Like, so they obviously decided they needed some some extra, you know, leadership here, management, uh, you know, really. Um, All right. Well, that's great news for Zimmer. We'll see what uh, what comes of that news. And Chris, what is our number one new markers? And it's a daily double. Actually, it's it's not a daily double. This is Tom. Our last new markers newsmakers was a long discussion about the Johnson and Johnson vaccine because we thought it would come out next week, but of course, it came out today on Friday. So we decided just to set all aside our big deep thoughts on the expected results and just uh, go right into our keynote conversation with Angelique Johnson. She's the CEO of Memstem. Well, Angelique Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Well, I'm so glad to be here. I'm glad that you reached out and I'm happy to connect. Great. We have a lot to talk about. I, I want to talk about the uh, MedTech Color Pitch Competition. The deadline on that is coming up. But uh, I do like to start these conversations normally finding out how people got into the MedTech industry. And we'll cover that in a second. But I was reading an article about you and uh, it seemed timely given all the trouble we have with the pandemic, with schooling, more kids at home. My child is homeschooling. You were homeschooled as a child. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, Your entire time or... You know, I think um, my memory serving me correct. I'm getting to that age now from, I think, first grade all the way through. 
you know, I was homeschooled. So before, yeah, before NTI was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and your parents had a science and mathematics background, correct? Yeah, they did. And my mom, she really wanted to give us kind of an educational experience that she felt the school system wouldn't, where, of course, you know, as you can see, I'm, I'm African-American and she didn't feel like the school system was actually doing a great job of educating us and some of the barriers we had. And, the, the you know, there's a sense of lower expectation if you were African-American going into the school system. So she kind of pulled us out and said, hey, I can get you guys going on my own. And of the people she homeschooled, a good number of us actually went on to get our PhD in engineering. So she must have done something right. <laughs> or get That's energy. amazing. That's outstanding. <laughs> yeah. My, my wife doesn't have a mathematics background, so I'm not sure what we'll do once we get up to that level. But anyway, let's get into uh, into what happened after the homeschooling. How did you find your way into the uh, into the med tech industry? Yeah. I, uh, you know, when I, I was always fascinated, um, even when I was younger, with the combination of technology and the body. Uh, I don't know... In my mind, I didn't think I was a Trekkie and into cyborgs, but somehow maybe that's where I picked it up. I don't know. But um, but I just always wanted to kind of sort of hack the body in that way and do the impossible. That was kind of it. Like I, I saw the limitation of even at that time, you know, surgeries and pharmaceuticals. And, you know, I'd ask, so why, why is somebody blind? Well, because there's no drug for that. And now um, with my company, Memstim, I'm able to do those things that as a child, I asked you know, why can't somebody walk? Can't you just, can't they just go into the hospital and get a surgery and walk? No, they're not able to walk that way. So. Interesting. So a a number of people or a percentage of people I talked to came into this thinking first they'd be doctors. They wanted to be involved with the medical part, but it sounds more like you came in, came in from a technical perspective. You wanted to bring technology into medicine. Yeah, I I got my degree in computer engineering in undergraduate, but I knew for the moment I signed up to get that degree, I had no interest in making smaller, faster computers. I, I just had no attraction to that. And so I was always, I mean, biomedical engineering was still relatively new at that time. So, um, you know, maybe a decade or more as an established like, discipline, you could get a major in. So I did right. computer engineering, electrical engineering, but I um, just remember always trying to find internships. You know, I went to MIT and Caltech and just different institutions, Case Western, and always trying to figure out my own way. Like, well, how do you combine technology and the nervous system? In particular, I was really interested in nerves and neurons because it just it controls everything that we do, think, feel. So how did, did that ultimately lead to your starting Memstim? So I was in my last year of my PhD program. Um, not the best time to start a company, <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, everybody around me was really kind of, you know, at Michigan, I was at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Everybody had the entrepreneurial bug. And I would hear my peers kind of going out and, you know, at least doing pitch competitions and thinking about starting a business. And they would go out to interview for an industry job, nothing to do with a startup. And they would say, yeah, you know, I talked about my entrepreneurial experience and they were really wild. And, you know, and so I said, oh, wait, maybe I should put that on my CV. So I, I'm an accidental entrepreneur. I did not intend to start a med tech business. I just intended to get some entrepreneurial experience as probably more so of a class endeavor. But through that experience, I really kind of latched on to this idea. Um, we got a lot of great feedback, you know, just from having investors and different, you know, even the corporations that we were seeking to target. And from there, just say, hey, well, let's launch into an actual company. So what does MemSTEM do now? Yeah. So now we are doing um, innovative manufacturing for neurostimulator leads and call it neurostimulators. You can call it electroceuticals. Um, you can call it neural implants. It has a whole host of names. They're pretty much it's electronics that you place inside the body. Mm-hmm. Most people are familiar with pacemakers. So you can think pacemaker-like devices that go all over your body to stimulate the nerves or neurons. So it can be for hearing loss. It can be for chronic pain, heart failure, Parkinson's tremors, epilepsy. They're using these devices now for PTSD, at least studying the use of them for PTSD, um, you know, stimulating even for diabetes. Uh, and looking at some early studies around that as well. So we make not the complete device, but we actually make the lead. So it's the, right now it's a bundle of wires that is coated in silicone and it's placed by the nerves, but we actually 3D print that same technology, which allows us to do cool things like make elastic metal, which is super critical because if you put a device in your brain, you want it to be durable enough to survive. You don't want someone to have to go in there and take it out when it breaks. (laughs) Good thought. (laughs) So have you, you, you start, you've started with cochlear implants. Is that still your, your yeah, primary yeah. focus? 
Yeah, that, that exactly. That was our primary focus. It, that, it was a spin out for my dissertation work. And um, we started out there because it was the most challenging. Now, in hindsight, I know a lot about entrepreneurship. So probably that wasn't the best idea. <laughs> But still being an academic in mindset, you say, well, let's start with the most challenging one because all of these devices stem from the cochlear implant for more, more or less, right? So with cochlear implants, they have the most electrodes, but they have the smallest. Well, these have the most, but, but now they have, still have the smallest electrodes and they have to fit in a really small spiral-shaped bone inside the ear. And so we knew that if we could create a really small device that was durable, that you could manufacture with automated manufacturing um, and you have it work for cochlear implants, then it was just going to be so much you know, exponentially easier to do spinal cord stimulators and deep brain stimulators and pacemakers because they're just much larger devices. So we're definitely still heavily focused on cochlear implants, but also now looking at things like, you know, percutaneous paddle leads so, uh-huh. because we make really elastic, thin technology rolling up a paddle lead and putting it in through a needle versus having to do an open surgery, which can have surgical complications and also lowers the adoption rate of that technology. Going back to the, the starting of your company, I mean, I think everyone has, at least I have probably on a one or two occasions thought, gee, I really would like to start my own thing, but I've never had the either the, the courage or, or just the, 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 the putting the care, enough care aside to, to do it. But you did. What, what would you, going back, are, would you have done it the way you did it? Mm-hmm. Are you happy? You're obviously happy with the way it turned out, but would you have done anything differently in, in starting in starting Memstem? I would have, um, you know, well, for one, I started in 2011 and it really wasn't until 2015, probably tail end of 2014, that I actually started. Uh, it was an idea, um, like I said, kind of an academic venture. I went out into the world, did some, you know, did other things in academia. And finally, it occurred to me after people, came, you know, are you guys going to develop this or not? Hey, can we get this technology or not? In 2014, I said, okay, let's just go for it. Um, and so what I would say is, you know, I would go back and I probably would have gone for it earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't have wasted those years. But the other thing I would have done differently is when I would even, the, the idea really generated through my dissertation, it, it generated an academic um, world, which is where a lot of technology starts. I would have thought from the very first day I started my research at the university, how do I make this in a large scale manufacturing facility, which would have totally changed the materials that I use. It would have totally changed. I would have thought a price point. I wouldn't have used tools that were highly expensive and restrictive. I wouldn't have Mm -hmm. used tools that relied on toxic gases that needed all this infrastructure. So we actually, we shifted away from traditional microfabrication when we pushed our minds and say, how can we do this with the lowest cost, with the low, with the least amount of tools, and we end up in the 3D printing world. And, and then finding that with some things that aren't as sexy, right? Injection molding. So we do micro injection molding. It's not sexy, but it actually is much more efficient and much better than what we were doing in the microfabrication world when you're talking about making durable, elastic implants that need to survive for 10, 20, 30 years in the body. So I would, I would have thought manufacturing first Instead of thinking, I'll make something really sexy that, that you know, has all these features and then I'll figure out how to make it. And that was a bad idea. <laughs> that was a bad idea. <laughs> did, did you have a, a network of folks to, to advise you? When, yeah, I had a lot of mentors um, starting out in the process. And by and large, they were general business mentors or they were in the kind of specific tech mentor. The other thing that's different now, as I grew and I became a more mature, like I said, I was accidental. So I had to learn by not, you know, just fumbling around. Um, and so as I grew, got more mature and grew, I came to realize that, you no, know, you needed specific people in a very refined space. So now I have some really great um, connections and um, advisors that are specifically in the space that I'm working in that have a specific expertise. So when they give me business advice, they know what they're talking about. And that's really critical, mm-hmm. especially coming out of the university system. There's a lot of people that help you and they want to help you in the hardest good and in the right place. But you really need to be focused on what is your target market and who are the players in the space. And when I say specific, I mean the former president of a company that we want to be acquired by. That those are the people that we have advising us now that I that I didn't give enough credit to in the beginning finding those individuals. 
And what do you, last question about MemSTEM, what do you, what do you hope MemSTEM will be in four or five years? So we really want MemSTEM to be um, kind of this umbrella company, but we're creating divisions within it. So the Cochlear Implant is a division that we hope to exit out of, right? So we want to generate the technology, the, the, you know, the platform around it, the infrastructure, and then be able to sell that off, then move into the spinal cord stimulator space and do the same. Now, um, there are companies out there like Integer, right? Mm-hmm. That operates somewhat uh, very similar in that way. And so MemStem was certainly, you know, exit to a company like that as well. We are a startup. We're in the business of exiting. We're not in the business of, you know, staying in this forever. So, but, the, but those companies are few and far between. And so because there's this kind of divide in the med tech space, we really want to be in a position to have maybe even several acquisitions under an umbrella company or maybe one large acquisition. But we, yeah, we very much so have a we're, we're again, traditional startup, you know, we want to be acquired. Um, this, we don't want to be in here for life. Uh, but because we had a platform technology, it was important for us not to go for everything at once, but to focus. So mm-hmm. we focus on the cochlear implant. We're at the point now where we're saying, okay, we actually generate a really great technology there. Maybe this is a good inflection point to start shifting into the spinal cord stimulator market so that, you know, we can and, and work in that before we launch into another market. So let's let's cut over to uh, to MedTech Color. Uh, first, the organization. How when, when did that come together? I think you're the first representative we've had from that group on the podcast. Uh, yeah. What's the origin story? So um, as I call him, I don't know if he would refer to himself as this, but I refer to him as the visionary founder, Kwame Omer, <laughs> dynamic. Uh, he, you know, it was really um, an idea that, that, you know, God inspired him with truly uh, to have a med tech organization specifically focused on uh, med tech experts, uh, med tech execs, med tech founders of color, and even more specifically focused, at least in the early stages of the, of the uh, organization on black and brown executives, founders and the like. So Kwame just reached out and he had a really great Rolodex of people. I mean, we had some phenomenal um, founding members and he just brought us all together. And really we said, hey, what are the the target areas that we want to hit? One, of course, being increasing the number of black executives in med tech. So that's a big thing for us identifying too as well. The other thing is increasing the number of Mm -hmm. black um, med tech startups. So black and brown med tech startups that we'll talk about the pitch competition kind of gets into that and getting access to capital for those startups. And again, that even those startups then become CEOs of their com- own companies and, and kind of tie into the first initiative. And then also looking at clinical studies, there's a huge um, um, issue with underrepresentation of African-Americans in many clinical trials. And so we want to increase that by obviously recognizing that some of that comes from um, damage that's been done to confidence um, that African-Americans have in clinical trials because of things like the Tuskegee experiment mm-hmm. um, and, all, and all kinds, you know, forced sterilization. And so you have all these things that we want to hit face on, ha- head on. But also people doing the clinical trials, you know, we, we, we can't negate this, are not actually aggressively looking to diversify that population pool. And due to genetics and all kinds of things, you know, what, what works for one population, one ethnicity is not necessarily just guaranteed to cross over into another one. That's a big charter. I mean, I, I I thought you were focused more on the on the startup aspect. I've talked to Boston Scientific about their close the gap program, which addresses the clinical trial element you're talking about. Do you really see MedTech Color as as tackling those two issues and others? I'm sure as well. Yeah, I mean, we have like I said, we have a really dynamic team, and and mm-hmm. the, the beauty of how how Kwame brought everybody together. He brought together, you know, individuals like myself who are very passionate, experienced in the startup world. And then he also brought in people that were very passionate, experienced in regulatory affairs and and high up in those areas. Um, And he brought together people that are doing, um, you know, for example, you know, Eve, you know, Ibrahim, who is, you know, Johnson and Johnson and, you know, uh, heading over innovation in that area is bringing innovators and people that are tied to, you know, corporations. So he's really brought in a diversity of individuals so that we could target these you know, seemingly separate areas, but having micro teams um, that are only going to grow as more and more members join to be able to put some focus on what are the big issues around Black, um, you know, that we have around, you know, African-American population in MedTech color, as well as all um, individuals of color in this space. But we certainly mm-hmm. know that, again, with African-American population, Latin- Latinx population, that those are really some of the biggest disparities and biggest issues that need to be addressed. Well, before we get into the pitch competition, just what what 
problems did you experience that you hope MedTechColor will will help solve, will maybe create some solutions for? Yeah. Well, you know, as a startup founder, um, especially as an African-American female startup founder, social capital is not, um, capital capital is in short supply. (laughs) (laughs) And and then on top of capital capital being short supply, and it's almost like which came first, the chicken and the egg, there's social capital. So there's being, being able to get into the rooms where the deals are happening, being able to get access to the individuals who are going to be able to really propel your startup further, be it whether it's in funding or whether it's a strategic partnership that you're forming with certain uh, corporations or potential acquirers or customers. So MedTech Color, I really think, is going to be able to address that by being sort of that, you know, the friend of a friend. Because right now we don't have, by and large, a friend of a friend to call and say, hey, do you, you, you know the president of Medtronic? You know, can, can I get a hold of him? We don't, we don't have that. And so MedTech Color is is building those relationships. And we've done excellently with that, you know, uh, Medtronic and Stryker and Boston Scientific and reaching out to those corporations, Johnson & Johnson, of course, coming in, uh, mm-hmm. Donaher, you know, just all of this coming in um, and building those relationships on the strategic side is really important so that then we can give people access to those partnerships who otherwise wouldn't have it. And then capital, of course, is, is, you know, I cannot say that enough, needing to get more access to capital. And that comes by putting more of a spotlight on med tech um, startups, you know, with founders of color, black and Latinx that currently um, are doing great work, have phenomenal companies, but are not being seen uh, because they're not being lifted up uh, above kind of the haze. Has MedTech Color seen a change over the past year since the, the, the killing of George Floyd caused the MedTech industry to sort of step up and make statements which are important and great? But I'm wondering on a, on a ground level, or have you sensed a change or are things, are things improving? Yeah, I think there's definitely a change um, in desire. And, um, and change, true change takes time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we, we've been, I would say, we're, we're coming up on a year of awakening. Yep. You know, enlightenment around social justice issues. And, you know, we, I think for, for many, many years, a lot of the large corporations, a lot of individuals always said, well, we have a focus on diversity in this. But I think this year they finally, there's probably an awakening of what the experience that perhaps their employee base, their talent pool, founders, you know, strategic partners, partners, there's a, there was an awakening of, oh, wait, we we cared about that issue, but maybe we didn't understand how deeply rooted it was in systemic mm-hmm. injustice. So what I think we're seeing now is a lot of corporations um, stepping up and saying, hey, we want to support this in a real way, in an actionable way, in a measurable way. And that is really encouraging. MedTech Color, of course, wants to help with that. Um, you know, we, we get a lot more, um, you know, we've seen a lot more interaction and requests like, hey, how can we support what you're doing? The pitch competition, you know, Johnson & Johnson supporting it, ResMed supporting it, you know, having, you know, all these, you know, hopefully pulling in more actually that we have, um, you know, that are almost about to support it as well. Uh, and that's just the pitch competition. Uh, MedTech Color overall, you know, just being so greatly supported, especially in this time, we're seeing a lot more, um, you know, what I say, people kind of putting their money where their mouth is and saying, hey, we know it takes money to do all kinds of things. Why would we suddenly look to diversity or look to inclusion and think that that's something you just get for free? Great point. Well, let's talk about the the pitch contest. You've got a deadline coming up. Uh, it's uh, I think you rolled this out in January, early, earlier this month. But uh, tell us a bit about what the contest is. Tell us about the deadline coming up. What, what, uh, what can people, how can people get involved? Awesome. Well, I am so excited about this pitch competition. That's how I got started. Like, you know, I was telling you earlier, I got started through pitch comp. I never would have started my company if it hadn't been for a pitch competition. It's a great way to get feedback from investors. It's a phenomenal way, opportunity to connect with strategics. And so we have started this competition, not just for the prize, the prize, we're giving out over $100,000 in cash prizes and also in-kind services. Uh, I think our top prize is $25,000 and that's just non-diluted, you know, in, you know, uh, income for that company. There's no strings attached. It's just, Hey, here's something that might be enough to get into a patent. Uh, might be enough to help them get some minimally viable prototype, depending on the company. But in addition to that, one thing that I think is, it is something I have been championing for years and I, I haven't seen the needle move, and I'm glad that MedTech Color is now being a part of that needle moving, which is what you see in the automotive industry is a lot of supplier diversity and partnerships with larger corporations and minority suppliers. So they actually, in a sense, grooming 
their own diversity in their supply chain. You don't see that in the med tech space. And this competition was beautiful about it is Johnson and Johnson is actually, and I don't know if they would say this, so I hope I'm not get myself in trouble, but they're almost like making, you know, a J Labs version, you know, specifically to this competition. So in other words, we're going to have a series of master classes taught straight out of Johnson & Johnson. It's going to be talking about regulatory affairs, pricing. Um, they're going to be talking about, you know, uh, company formation, um, you know, how do you raise money and capital for your company? Well, it's not just the classes, but then the Johnson & Johnson talent, right, their, their strategic partnership with MedTech Cutler is such that the 10 finalists that go through those master classes actually get access to the intimate relationship with Johnson and Johnson and further mentorship on the inside. Um, and then we, and you know, this first time around, you know, we're kind of launching with almost these soft partnerships. We really hope to see this even next year turning into a, you know, we call it a, an immersive incubator. So instead of having an incubator where companies come through the competition and they go through a MedTech color incubator and they're in our space, we're actually going to say, hey, what are you, who are you trying to be acquired by? Who are you trying to get as a strategic partner? Okay, why don't we incubate you inside of Johnson & Johnson? Because that's where you really want to be. Why don't we incubate you? And ResMed is doing a special prize. They're actually going to do that, have an opportunity for the winner of their special prize to actually come in and intimately get on the inside of ResMed. And so that, to me, just, you know, maybe some founders don't, and starting out, don't realize the value of that. I believe most do. That is so much more valuable than the money. Because at the end of the day, you don't reach acquisition without the partnership and you don't even know how to get to the revenue side unless you really understand the industry and to be on the inside of that it's just phenomenal so what does the uh, who should apply what type of company should apply and and how do they apply and and we'll ha- and we'll have a URL and such on our, our podcast notes so you don't have to read out websites but uh, give us a sense of the, of the process so we are looking for black and Latin ex founders that are in the healthcare space. So that means you can have a healthcare technology. It could be, you know, mobile healthcare app, all the way to an implantable, like my company, an implantable neurostimulator. Uh, you know, you can be in, in other words, in the kind of the hard implantable space. You can be in the software space. You can be in the software as a service space. Um, you can be, and you know, broad. You can be, you know, in a broad range of areas that all fall under med tech, and we call it like med tech adjacent. So really, we kind of have opened up the range of types of companies. You do have to be a company that's kind of in that pre-seed or seed stage because that's really where we're losing the companies. They're not able to get, we don't have friends and family like that. You know, that the data shows it, um, especially for Black founders and Latinx founders, it's just because of systemic injustices that you don't have the generations of wealth to have that. And so that because that doesn't exist, we're creating an opportunity. How do we get you some friends and family money um, mm-hmm. and again, build your social capital in ways that you wouldn't have access? So it's for Black and Latinx founders in the healthcare space. They can go to the website um, and see specifically um, the different breakdown of the categories in that space, but it really covers the full gamut. Um, there's nothing that we really left out. And again, we're looking for, you know, we said the early stage, you want a company that has at least um, a minimally viable prototype or heading in that direction, significantly in that direction to apply for this competition, but nobody should not apply. So apply, you have nothing to lose. It's a very short application. And so I encourage everybody to apply, apply, apply. And next year or in future competitions, I'm not sure if this is what you were suggesting earlier, but do you want to have uh, Medtronic or Boston Scientific or Baxter or other companies involved in this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, some of those companies on that list <laughs> may actually end up being involved in this year. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're still working out some of those partnerships. So hopefully that will be happening this year. But we want we, we want we want every major player in the space to be involved and not just involved from a capital standpoint, although that is super critically important. We need that. I mean, you just can't, you can't operate without that. But from a more intimate standpoint too, of, hey, we are going to actually incubate um, and be part of this uh, startup ecosystem in an active way on this seed level, instead of just waiting and seeing, well, what, 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 you know, what it's like the survival of the fittest. And then when we're ready to acquire, you know, at the end, well, by that time, unfortunately, a lot of these companies have already been filtered out because they just didn't have the access to capital um, that they needed. They didn't have the, the social connections that they needed, the social capital that they needed to make it to that phase. But there's some phenomenal technologies coming out of these companies. And so we don't want the Medtronics and the Boston Scientifics and the Baxters and the Strikers and the Johnson and Johnsons to miss out on critical acquisitions 
because the technology that they've been dying for and wanting and was going to expand the marketplace for them didn't make it because they couldn't get past the first stage due to funding. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's a, a terrible way to, to lose out on the market opportunity. Great. Well, it's, I, I love pitch contests as well. So uh, we'll definitely be tracking, uh, tracking the, the winners of this. And thanks for, for sharing your story on the podcast. It was great having you today. Wonderful. I'm so glad to make it. And thank you again for inviting me. It was great connecting with Angelique Johnson and hearing about the MedTech Color Pitch Competition. We hope, we hope to have the winners of the competition on a future Device Talks podcast. So it would be, uh, be good to listen to their stories. Now is the time for us to share our social media contacts. Brian Bunce, you are the, uh, the visiting guest. Please uh, let folks know how they can find you on social media. You can find me on LinkedIn. I think I'm the only, you're with only Brian Bunces there, so I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> Chris Newmarker, what about yourself? I'm on LinkedIn too, and yeah, there, there are not many new markers around the world either. So I think you could you could find me on LinkedIn as well, just like a new marker. Excellent, and there aren't a lot of Salemis, but uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. I'm also on Twitter at MedTechTom, and I've just signed up on Clubhouse, which is intriguing. So I'm at MedTechTom there. If any of you folks are involved in the uh, the new Clubhouse app, we'll see where that leads us. But uh, more ways to to reach out to our MedTech community. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on this Device Talks with you podcast. Brian, thanks for telling us your, uh, your Dexcom story. Thanks. Appreciate it. It was fun talking about the CGM. Very cool. It was a, yeah, this was a, this was a great discussion. We got to have you on more, Brian. Chris, thanks for playing Newmarker's Newsmakers Jeopardy. Tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast waiting for you. Da, 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 da. 